I'd like to cover all of the rest of Acts chapter 13. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is, is uh, have us read a portion of that passage, verses 15 through 23, as we do every Sunday. If you can, please stand and let us read the Scriptures together and read it aloud. The reading is Acts 13, verses 15 through 23. And then we'll go back to verse 13 and we'll begin our study there. Let's read together Acts 13, beginning at verse 15 down through verse 23. Let's read together. Let's read aloud. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. It's a good place to end our reading with the name Jesus. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you and bless you for the privilege of an open Bible to read and to study to grow in and, Lord, to gain wisdom from. And we are thankful and blessed to have this time and this opportunity, Lord, to sit quietly at your feet. And, Lord, to let your Holy Spirit move among us and teach us your precious word. We're thankful, Lord, for the blessing and the outpouring and the anointing of your Holy Spirit so that we, together, may grow and understand your word and gain that wisdom to live our lives in such a way that will please you, will honor you, and will encourage us to live that way until the day of Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Okay, I've got a lot to say, a lot to say in a little time, so try to stay up with me. I've chosen to take all the rest of this chapter, mainly because most of it is narrative, a lot of it is stuff that we've covered in other passages when Peter also preached his sermon and gave a history of Israel, and, and I should say Stephen, when he gave his particular message on the history of Israel. So a lot of this we have covered, and we'll touch on certain aspects of it as we get into the study. But as we delve into the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, our attention 
will be drawn to various and sundry difficulties encountered even at the very onset of their mission. Approaching these difficulties may vary, but as we just read, the message remains the same. Paul's heart was to tell people, both Jews and Gentiles, of the saving grace that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, their difficulties would include desertion, as we'll see today, disputation, as we'll see today, and even division. And the division we'll look at in the next chapter, chapter 14. But I want you to mark clearly the continual presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in His disciples. This is something that we ought not to uh, to take lightly when we go through the book of Acts. Because from the very beginning, when when the Lord anointed the church and and blessed the church with the power of the Holy Spirit and and the tongues of fire came upon them and upon the 120, from that moment on, the Spirit said, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be your strength. I'm going to be your wisdom throughout the increase of the church. And so that is, a, that is something that we need to see marked even in the apostles that have been sent out beyond Jerusalem and uh, Judea and Samaria, now to the uttermost parts of the earth. But when it comes right down to it, what ministry can ever take place in the midst of great difficulty without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit? It, it just doesn't make sense for any of us as believers in Jesus Christ to think that we can do anything without God's power and without God's Spirit. So this is an important thought to keep in mind as we go through this chapter today. So in verse 13, let's go back to that point. We didn't read this, but uh, this is where we'll begin. Verse 13, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, in Cyprus, by the way, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now they've got on a boat again, and they've traveled up north, up to uh, Asia. And it says, And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. This is a very critical thing for us to understand in the aspect of the difficulty of, of, of desertion. John departing from them, returning to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. I want to stop there for just a moment and, and let you know that they had begun in Antioch in Syria. And I may have mentioned last week, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it was in first service or second, but I kind of got ahead of myself in, in mentioning that they had been in Antioch of Asia Minor. In fact, they were in Antioch of Syria, and now they're heading toward the Antioch in, uh, in Asia Minor, in Pisidia. And so just so you'll know the difference between the two Antiochs. So let's read verse 14 again. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now, it's important to understand that a a regular synagogue service included the, uh, or began with, as it were, prayer, uh, obviously. But then uh, was the reading of the law. And then there would be the reading of the prophets. So there were two major readings at the synagogue service. Following the, the reading of the, uh, uh, of the law and the prophets, then they would ask someone in the audience there or in the congregation, usually a rabbi, but sometimes a, a guest that had come in that was one who was considered to be a, 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 an intelligent, a, a prudent man, a, a person knowledgeable of the scriptures, to make comments concerning the readings that were given. So with that in mind, you see, you see how uh, then they ask Paul and Barnabas, 
if they have any word. So a couple of things will strike us here in this particular section we just read. First of all, notice that Paul has become the leader of this team according to Luke. Because before it had been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, then Barnabas and Paul. Now it says Paul and his party set sail from Paphos. So according to Luke then, Paul has become the leader of this team. And this gives us indication to a second thought now. And the second thought is uh, the greatness of Barnabas. The greatness of Barnabas to be willing to let Paul be the leader. As if to say, you know, Barnabas was, was really the mentor of Paul. If you go back and you read how Barnabas had come alongside of Paul to help him, strengthen him in, in, in the study of the word and, and so on and so forth. So now the mentor has become the servant. And it just gives an indication of that soft, that, that, that beautiful heart of a servant who doesn't have to be out in front of things. It may very well be that this was what they were grooming Paul for, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. While that might be nice between Paul and Barnabas, it may not have been so nice for John Mark. Because it may have led, this all may have led to the first difficulty as this missionary team set sail to Perga in Pamphylia. Because we're told that John Mark leaves them to go back to Jerusalem. And that's the first difficulty we see here, that of desertion. Now we don't know for sure why he left. Some believe that he was homesick, he was a young man, he may have been homesick. Others believe that he was afraid of the demanding and dangerous travel. While still others suggest that he left because he resented the fact that his relative, uh, some people have called him the, uh, the nephew of, of Barnabas, uh, but more, more than likely he was a cousin of Barnabas. But nonetheless he resented the fact that his relative Barnabas was no longer the leader. Now more than likely it was a combination of all of these factors. Because it's usually not just one factor that will cause someone to desert. But there's just a buildup of factors that has caused John Mark now to depart them and, and go back to Jerusalem. Now difficult people are one of the problems in the Lord's work. And John Mark is showing the signs of a difficult person in ministry. Those who start enthusiastic and show signs of dependability, but, but later they abandon their commitment. Now I have to tell you that we will see that Mark redeems himself eventually. Giving hope to those who feel that they have failed the Lord for good. Giving them hope that, you know, listen, God wants to still use you. You know, God didn't leave you, you left Him. And realize, though, that God is a gracious God. And out of all of this, He can teach us, you know, the necessity to be dependable, the necessity to be faithful, the necessity to be committed to the work that He gives us. There are times when that, uh, that lesson is, is harder than we want it to be, but when God gives it, praise the Lord. He wants you back, serving Him. So we're then told that, uh, so we're, we're going to come back to Mark later. There's another incident and, and we'll, we'll deal with that later. But we're told then that, that Paul and his team went into the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia and were, in fact, asked to give this word of encouragement. And of course, Paul would see this as the opportunity then to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ because this was their whole mission to preach the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles. So getting back to our text in verse 16 now, it says that Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand, motioning in, in, in a sense for quiet motioning to, to, re, to receive the attention, to say, listen to what I have to say. And then he says this, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now let's stop there for a moment because you need to understand who, who he's speaking to. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. He's speaking to two groups. 
He's speaking to the Jews, the men of Israel. And he's speaking to the God-fearing Gentiles who were believing in the God of Israel. We have run into that with Cornelius. Cornelius, a Roman, was one who was very much attracted to the Lord God of Israel. And uh, so he would go to the synagogue. He learned the lessons. He learned the language so that he would understand uh, about the God of Israel. So in many places, there were in the synagogues, not only Jews, but Gentiles. So Paul, realizing this, speaks to them. And he says, men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I just love the way that, uh, that Paul brings this into a concise form, while at, at the same time giving, uh, giving application, or, or as it were, you know, giving his commentary along the way. He says, uh, well, a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness, which means their ways may not have been a very good way to be with God. Verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, He distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, what a tremendous amount of history is given to us in just a short amount of time. And yet, this is stuff that these men knew. They knew because they knew the history. They knew the Word of God. He was just bringing them up to date with Jesus, you see. And by doing that, or I should say by, do, by speaking about David, that's how he was doing it. He brings up David after Saul had failed as a king. And Saul was only there because the people wanted a king like all the other nations around him. But it was God who brought David into the picture. It says he raised up for them David. The people cried for a king, so he gave them Saul. But he raised up David. And I think that's also an interesting statement. He raised up for them David. To raise up. Almost gives us another picture of, of resurrection as well. But he raises up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony. And then he says a beautiful statement. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed... Notice, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, just for the sake of understanding, Paul and Barnabas traveled 100 miles north and close to uh, 3,600 feet up to get to this Antioch of Pisidia, a strategic city on the Roman road. And there was thoughtful planning in this, not only by the Lord Himself, but, uh, you know, through... Uh, the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit to Barnabas and Paul to plant churches in these strategic cities and from them evangelize the surrounding areas. So ministry would usually start 
as we know, in the local synagogue because of Paul's burden for his people. Now don't take lightly the burden that Paul had for the Jews. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul himself writes and says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In the next chapter, verse 1, Romans 10, 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That was his, his heart's burden, was that his own people had missed the boat about Jesus, had missed the boat about Messiah, had, had just rejected, in essence, the, the, the Messiah himself. And so this first part of Paul's sermon then, in reviewing the history of Israel, was to prepare his hearers for the coming of their promised Messiah, even though he's already come. This was yet preparation. He also reminded them that the nation had not always been faithful to the Lord and the covenant, but was often rebellious. As we notice when he mentions they were in the wilderness uh, and he was putting up with them. And yet every pious Jew knew that the Messiah would come from David's family and that a prophet would announce his coming beforehand. And that prophet was a man named John. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. But before we get to John, listen to the passages. Listen to the passages from which Paul points to David and to Jesus. Psalm 89 verse 20. Here the psalmist says, but it's the, it's the, the Lord speaking. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. I have found my servant David. He speaks in terms that we ourselves can understand. It's not as if God is looking around desperately to find somebody because, you know, he messed up with Saul. God didn't mess up with Saul. The people messed up. Because God was their king. But they wanted a man to lead them like all the other nations around Israel. God had not failed them. Saul failed them. And the people had failed in having that desire. So God speaks to us in these terms. I have found my servant David. In 1 Samuel 13 verse 14. He also quotes from here. Speaking directly to Saul but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you in those particular words Paul is is quoting from to give that picture of how God knew the kind of man that he would choose as leader of Israel. But more importantly, the one who would bring about, through his line, through his family, the Messiah, King Jesus. Who, by the way, is the ultimate fulfilling of the passage when Paul says, who will do all my will. Who will do all my will. You know, David did much of God's will. But David also failed. David also faltered a few times in his life. 
And even though the Lord would, would continue to commend David for being one who never worshipped idols, who never bowed his knee to an idol, David didn't fulfill all of this will. Who will do all my will? But who would do it? Jesus, who comes from the line of David. Jesus would be the one who would completely fulfill this passage. Who will do all my will. What did Jesus oftentimes say? I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. And in essence, fulfilling that particular will. That, Dave, that Paul is pointing to and telling his own people, men of Israel, and those who fear God. It's David, yes. But out of David came Jesus. And this is how we see it there in the text that we just read. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Jesus. And they knew something. When he said that, they knew that he was speaking about Messiah. The Messiah they were looking for. The Messiah they were waiting for. And so Jesus himself, the son of David, is the one who would do all of God's will. And then Paul does mention John as a prophet. And in Acts 13, verses 24 and 25, as we continue, it says, After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. And so Paul includes John in the history of Israel as one of the prophets who was pointing to Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. So from preparation, which, is he, which he's doing to these men, preparing their hearts to understand and know who Messiah is, Paul now moves on to declaration. He moves from preparation to declaration. And in Acts 13, verse 26, we continue. By the way, men and brethren here is a, is a signal that we're in, entering into a second part of the sermon. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Again, he includes the Gentiles who are there listening. He says, to you, all together, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. He's not excluding the Gentiles from salvation here. From the need of salvation and from the opportunity for salvation. So he says, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him. By the way, they did not know Jesus because they chose not to. It was a willful rejection. Those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. And though they found no cause for death in Him. Can you imagine that? And that was the truth. They had found no cause in condemning Jesus. Nonetheless, they still took Him to the cross. Notice. And though they found no cause for death in Him, they asked Pilate that He should be put to death. So they were saying, look, we're going to wash our hands of Him. We'll send Him to Pilate. Pilate actually washes his hands of Jesus and sends Him back and says, crucify Him. But it's on your hands. But you know what? It was on all our hands. 
Because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so in verse 29, he goes on, he says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, about the death of Jesus Christ, the death of Messiah, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now this is the key to the declaration. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So now he mentions the very fact that I'm not telling you that Jesus was raised from the dead just because I want you to believe it. I'm telling you there were people who saw it, and there are witnesses today who are living. You can ask them. They saw Jesus alive. Not only did they see him alive, but they saw him ascend into heaven. Verse 32, he says, And we declare to you glad tidings. In other words, this is good news, folks. This is the good news. That promise which was made to the fathers. What was the promise? Notice, God has fulfilled for this, I'm sorry, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He raised up Jesus. It was the promise of resurrection. As it is also written in the second psalm. Now notice this. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Most people think that that is speaking of his birth. But I'm going to explain to you in just a moment that it is speaking of his resurrection. And then in verse 34, Paul says, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Again about resurrection. Verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. In other words, he was buried. His body, of course, deteriorated, as, as, as all bodies do in the ground. But notice verse 37, But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. No corruption. That's Jesus. So this second part of the sermon deals then with the death and the resurrection of Jesus and with the witnesses of the apostles as well as the witnesses of the scriptures, the prophets. They should have known because they had the prophets. They read them every Sabbath. But Paul emphasizes that this message of salvation was sent out to them personally through those commissioned by the Lord Jesus, the prophets and the apostles. And not only to the Jews present, but also to the Gentile God-fearers among them as well. He showed that the death of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's prophetic word, and that it was carried out by those who dwelled in Jerusalem and their rulers. You remember that Peter used the same uh, uh, statement, or made the same statement about them? That they had taken Jesus and crucified, but it was according to the, the predetermined will of God and counsel of God. It's important to note that, uh, that Paul didn't blame the death of Jesus on the Jews in general, but only on those who in Jerusalem were actually involved. But he also recognizes that they did it because of ignorance in Christ and of the voices of the prophets read every Sabbath. In other words, it was willful ignorance. And that's what is implied here. Since they did not know these prophecies, or I should say since they did know the prophecies, they heard the prophecies, they read the prophecies, yet they chose not to believe. 
You know, we can tell people time and time again, look at the Scriptures, look at what the Word of God says about Jesus. But some people won't look. They won't read, they won't study. They just choose to be ignorant. I pray that something a whole lot better for you all. That you've not chosen to be ignorant, but you've chosen to believe. Not because I say so, but because the Word of God says so. And if you study the Word of God, you realize that from Genesis to Revelation, there are no contradictions. There may be apparent contradictions. That's why we study to show how things work out in the Scriptures. But any contradictions? No, because if it, if it had contradictions, if the Word contradicted itself, then it wouldn't be the Word of God. And it wouldn't be true. We believe it to be true. They had the word, yet they did not believe it. So let's look at this cross-referencing that Paul used. He uses Psalm 2 verse 7 to speak of the resurrection. We read it this way, uh, the psalmist says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Again, I, I say that some people look at this particular uh, verse and say, well, that's speaking of his birth. I mean, to be begotten. Well, hold, to the, hold that thought for just a moment. I'm going to try to get you to change your mind about that, if you, if you think that. Isaiah 55, verse 3 says, Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David. The assurance of resurrection. Because that's where the promises were. And then there is that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And of course, Paul did a marvelous job of showing that hey, even David himself died and, and he saw corruption. So it would then have to be his descendant, the seed out of David that would see no corruption, that is Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. So again, note that Psalm 2-7 refers to the resurrection of Christ and not to the birth of Christ. There, there really is a reason why the Apostle John, when he writes in John 19 verse 41 about the place where, where Jesus, who had been crucified, was placed. Let's look at that verse. It's an interesting verse. In John 19.41 it says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And I believe that this, the, the, the scripture here is so, is so clearly graphic for us. The wording is, is very essential for us to understand. The new tomb, as it is mentioned here, was literally... A virgin tomb. A virgin tomb. That was like a womb that gave birth to Jesus Christ in resurrection glory. That is how it would come to be. So when Paul uses Psalm 2 verse 7, there is that connection to understand that that tomb was like a womb. John gives us the description to make it even clearer to us. 
that tomb would have no one else in it. But Jesus would come out of it like a womb. The birth of resurrection glory. It's not talking, Psalm 2-7 is not talking about his birth as a child. It's talking about his resurrection. That's why Paul uses that. So just something for you to consider. Something for you to realize. Not to skip over, you know, to say, well, we think it's just about his birth. Yet Paul uses it for his resurrection. This is how we can get an idea that that's what it was for. So now from proclamation to declaration, Paul moves to application. Let's look at verses 38 through 41. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So now that Paul had declared the good news to his listeners, he tells them that through faith in Jesus Christ, they could have two blessings, count them, two blessings, that the law could never provide. What were those two blessings? The forgiveness of sins. And secondly, justification before the throne of God. Those were two things that the law could not provide. Because the law cannot justify a sinner. It can only condemn him. The law cannot forgive a sinner. It can only condemn him. Important to understand. So what is Paul saying? Let it be known to you. Through Jesus Christ... You receive forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, you receive justification. Because the law cannot justify a sinner. It can only condemn him. But God not only forgives sins. God not only forgives our sins. He also gives us the very righteousness of Christ and puts it on our account. You know, there were a few times that the scribes and the Pharisees got a little upset at Jesus when Jesus gives forgiveness to people. How can He give forgiveness? Because of who He was. He was God in the flesh. He could do so. Because He would eventually fulfill all the law and the prophets. He was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But the law... As you read in some of Paul's writings, especially in the book of Romans and and Galatians as well. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ, but the law cannot forgive us. The law cannot justify us. And so that was certainly good news to hearts that had no peace, and yet they were religious. And that's the way it is with a lot of people today. People are religious, but they're not at peace with God. And they think by the much doing that they do in their lives and try to, you know, build up on one side all the good things that they do so that they can can outweigh their bad things. The more good things I do, it'll outweigh my bad things. And God will have to take notice of that. God doesn't take notice of that. He only looks for one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ on your life. He looks for the blood of Jesus Christ on your heart. Because in us, there's no good. There is no good in us without Christ. 
Christ is our goodness. Christ is our mercy. Christ is our kindness. Christ is our everything. We can't be anything that God wants us to be unless the righteousness of Christ is upon us. And the Spirit of God is upon us. So it's good news to hearts that have no peace. Now you can have peace because Jesus died on that cross for you to have peace with God. That's why Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks about peace with God by being justified by faith in Christ. Paul then gives a warning here in this sermon. As he concludes his sermon, he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. <laughs> this is a, a, a great way, I suppose, to, to end the sermon with a tremendous warning. <laughs> He says, look among the nations and watch. Now this is the passage he quotes from. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. You see, the unbelievable work that God was doing in Habakkuk's day was raising up the Chaldeans to chasten His people. Something that was so remarkable that no one would believe it. I mean, not even Habakkuk wanted to believe it in the first chapter. He was so upset with God. God, how is it that you're letting these fishnet-worshipping people come and destroy your people? You couldn't understand it. God had to speak to him and show him. But that was the work he was doing. Here it is. Let Let me sum it up in this statement. God using Gentiles to punish Jews. That was the unbelievable work. God using Gentiles to punish Jews. (laughs) But the wonderful work in Paul's day was that God was using Jews to save Gentiles. Isn't God amazing in the way He works? Oh, we ought not to miss these things. So now the sermon is over. The warning has been given to the Jews. Listen, be careful. Because not too many days from now, not too many years from now, Not too many years from that time, Rome was going to come and it was going to destroy Jerusalem. It was going to destroy their temple. And the people would be scattered. Millions would die and then the the rest would be scattered. The Jews would be scattered throughout all the world. It was the same warning. I'm going to use the Gentiles to chasten my people. That was the warning. But here's the... here's. Here's the salvation. Here's the safety. Here's the deliverance. Come to Jesus Christ. Because He came for you. He died for you. He came to forgive you. He came to justify you. What the law could not do, Jesus came to do. So what happens in verses 42 and 43 of our text? So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. It was the Gentiles who said, give us more. (laughs) Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So let's be fair, there were many Jews as well that believed. And they followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them. Notice, a lot is said, a lot is done in these few words. They followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them Persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. This is a a matter of of days or weeks. That those who are following them have now come to faith in Christ. They have come to grace. They have come to know the grace of Jesus Christ. And so what does he say to them? 
He persuades them to continue in the grace of God. That tells us that they got saved, more than likely got filled with the Holy Spirit. They're following Paul. They are now the established church of Antioch Pisidia. And they are following Paul and Barnabas, who, who persuade them to continue in the grace of God. Folks, continuing in grace is as important as beginning in grace. Please understand that. Continuing in grace is as important as beginning in grace. Because it is to remain the foundation for our life with Him. We're never to leave that grace, that wonderful grace that has brought us to Jesus Christ. That is truly amazing grace, isn't it? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What amazing grace. Continue in that grace. Don't take it for granted. Oh, yeah, I was saved 20 years ago, but, you know, hey, you know, it's all right. I just live the way I want to now. No. We're to continue in the grace. That wonderful foundation that God has laid for us in Jesus Christ. Well, let's continue. Most of you know about that. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath day. We're going to start moving from the ministry now to mayhem. (laughs) On the next Sabbath day, almost the whole city uh, came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and and Barnabas grew bold and, and they said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Wow, what a statement. You know, the people did a great job in spreading the news, didn't they? It says almost the whole city came. The crowd that gathered was probably made up of mostly Gentiles, which made the Jews envious and angry, revealing that they were more concerned with being popular than with serving God. This caused them to contradict Paul, caused them to blaspheme his message, and and oppose him outright. That happens a lot today to true Christians, Christians who are really standing on the Word of God. People don't want to hear the Word of God. They don't mind Christians that are milquetoast, that don't really want to stand on God's Word, that are just kind of, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I I also believe in, you know, all kinds of other things. Whatever you want to believe, I can believe it, but you know, I... I'm a Christian. Well, that's the kind of Christian the world wants. The world doesn't want a Christian who will stand on God's Word and on the truth of God's Word, but will stand on it. Paul and Barnabas did. They grew bold. They didn't uh, weasel away. You know, when the opposition uh, arose, they stood up. They said, it's necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, what a statement. To judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. First of all, let me ask you this. How many of us here are worthy of everlasting life? Not one of us is. But why does he mention it in that term? It's because everlasting life was presented to them through Jesus Christ. But they wanted to reject the only way. They were rejecting the only way to everlasting life. So they considered themselves unworthy of what God says is the only way to everlasting life. That's their rejection of Jesus And he says, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So, we're told that Paul and Barnabas grew bold. 
And that's an important thing. They grew bold together because we are not in ministry alone. Someone will stand with us in truth. Someone will stand with us in truth. We won't be like Elijah who goes after, you know, after, have, after seeing God do a tremendous thing against the prophets of Baal. Then when he hears one word about Jezebel, you know, runs and hides and he says, I'm the only one. And God says, you're not the only one. You're not alone. We sometimes may think we're alone, but God always has a partner for us in Christ. We need to remember that. We're not alone in ministry. Somebody will stand with us in truth. Paul's final message in the synagogue declared that God had sent the word to the Jews first, but they had now rejected it. And so Paul would now take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6, to back up his, his decision. There it says, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So it isn't just, it isn't just what? It isn't just the Jews, but to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. But salvation is for all. Salvation is for all. And Paul says, now I know my calling. Now I know where I'm to go. Now I will take the word to the Gentiles. And so the last section of Acts 13 shows us a couple of things, very important things. It shows us the divine side of evangelism in verse 48. And it also shows us the human side of evangelism in verse 49. In other words, God has His elect, but if we don't preach the word, then no one can believe and be saved. An interesting thought. Let's look at it in in verses 48 and following. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And notice this phrase, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as as had been appointed to eternal life. The elect that God had already known from the foundation of the world, they believed. But why? Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You see, divine, you know, the divine part of evangelism, the human part of evangelism brought together. God has His elect. We don't know. I mean, you know, that's why we have to preach the gospel. Notice, let's go on. I'll I'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 50, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, both the sovereign will of God and the responsibility of man are necessary in covering those two verses, 48 and 49. Both the sovereign will of God and the responsibility of man are necessary. Let's look at it this way. Let's look at the writings of Paul. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, that is God's sovereign will. He has His elect. He has chosen us. We didn't know He was going to, but He did. Now we can say, wow, He chose us. I don't know why. He didn't choose choose us because we were good or we were holy. He chose us to make us holy. But then in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, notice what it says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel 
for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is the election in the sense of the, the, the fact that the sovereign will of God, you've been chosen for salvation, but it came to you by our gospel, the human side of evangelism. Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, completely telling us here about that human side. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so from beginning, we see the statement, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. God's side and man's side of evangelism brought together. That's, that's a wonderful picture that we need to always remember is being given to us here. A lot of people say there's not a lot of doctrine in, 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 the, uh, in the book of Acts. Yeah, there is. You just have to find it and see it. Let's go on. That, that opposition you know, now that we see again here in, in, in Antioch, Pisidia, was strong enough to force Paul and Barnabas to pack and leave the area. The time had come to move on. Not to settle there. And so they would obey an injunction of the Lord given to his disciples back when the Lord was in his earthly ministry. And and in Luke chapter 9 verse 5, this is what he tells his disciples as he's sending them out in ministry. He says, And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And then in Luke 10 verse 11 Jesus, in a, in a situation here, says, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, this was the equivalent of, of calling the Jews there heathens, delivering them to the judgment of God. We wipe the dust off. The place we're not supposed to walk, where heathens are. But we're dispatching you to judgment, delivering you to God's judgment. And so that was a heavy, heavy statement of what they, they were doing after they left Antioch, Pisidia. Now they would move on to Iconium, the easternmost city in the region, the region of Pisidia. And in, in ministry, there, there are always open doors. Those of you that have been active in, in, in taking the gospel to places here and there, There are always open doors in ministry. Now, one door may close, but another will always open. Always look for the open door. By driving the missionaries out of Pisidian Antioch, the the Jews only ensured the spread of the gospel to other areas. You're going to be here. Well, all they're saying is, well, go take the gospel to other places. And that's what they did. The last verse describes now the more after the mayhem. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not refer just to Paul and Barnabas. It mainly refers to the disciples left behind in Antioch. Because you see, the, perse- <coughs> excuse me, the persecutors did not destroy the church in Pisidian Antioch. I mean, they, they, they sent Paul and Barnabas out, but it didn't destroy the Jews, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles that were now the believers in Jesus Christ. They were filled with joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I'm sure along the way, Paul would speak of a couple of things. Of the great statement that that is given to us in in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10, that says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You're going to face opposition. The opposition is already here. You're in the midst of it. But listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Now, I'm sure that Paul wouldn't say, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, because Matthew 5 hadn't been written yet. But, uh, but he said, you know, here's what Jesus said on the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What wonderful words of life given to the church. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You know, I think it's about time that the church in America start realizing these particular truths. Our rewards are not here on this earth. Our rewards are not here in this life. Oh, God has blessed us. God has blessed us tremendously. But these are all temporal rewards. The rewards that matter are those that are stored in heaven. Those that are kept in heaven. And Jesus spoke about those treasures. The treasures that we are to to have in, in, in heaven. Where... Neither moth nor rust can destroy where, where, where neither uh, thieves can break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. You know, things happen. People steal, people rob, people destroy things around us. You know, we get a little upset, but you know what? That's not our reward. It comes, it goes, but you know what? Those things that we store in heaven. When we face those trials, and we're going to face them. If you watch the news long enough, you'll realize there, there, is, a, there is just an undercurrent of hatred for the person of Jesus Christ and the person who follows Jesus Christ and the true church of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of funky churches out there today, but there's one true church made up of true believers who trust and know God and believe in His Word and trust in His Word. That I hope you are a part of. We need to realize that our rewards are not here. Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Are you storing it up? Are you living your life for the sake of Christ? They had joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us have joy. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us live in that joy until the day of Jesus Christ. And let us take the Word of God. Let us use every opportunity. Let us take every open door. And let us tell people about Jesus. Aren't you glad that someone told you about Jesus Christ? For you to be in His church today? And I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about in His body, the church. Aren't you glad that someone told you about Jesus? The Lord says, now take it and tell somebody else. And you bring them. And you get, you get excited. I mean, those Gentiles went out of that place and they begged, it says. They begged Paul. Paul, come back. Teach us more. 
And we'll bring a few friends. They brought the whole city, practically. What does that say about a heart that wants God, that desires heavenly treasure, that desires eternal life, that desires forgiveness of sins, and that desires justification by faith through grace and God's love? Let's pray.